Attention, please. Places for top of show. Places for top of show. Hello, and welcome to Twins Talk Theater. We are Cindy and Stacy, and we're talking about theater, backstage life, and all the excitement that the audience doesn't get to see. Enjoy the show. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's Twins Talk Theater. Today, we have Farrell Hirsch. He has produced over 120 plays and musicals. He helped found the Ovation Awards in L.A., He ran the Playboy Radio Network on Sirius XM Radio, which he helped launch in 2002. And now he is the CEO of the Muckenthaler Cultural Center in Fullerton. Recently, he has written a book called What I Learned from 50 Celebrities by Screwing Up in Front of Them, which you can buy on Amazon. So welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you, guys. I'm I'm really happy to be here. I I am a big ham and I like to get noticed. A true theater person. Well, you know, it's funny is a lot of people have met me in, over the years that, oh, you're in theater. You are, are you an actor? One thing I never chased is being an actor. That never, that never appealed to me. I don't see myself as a performer. Um, but I like that. I like that other people sometimes see that or suspect that. I feel like if you tell people you work in theater, they always assume you're an actor. And one of the things we wanted to do with this podcast is to say, there's a lot of us in the world who don't act and never wanted to. Well, the irony is I kind of got into theater to get away from actors. <laughs> we, we, I, know, I, I know that seems crazy, but um, I was uh, writing TV, writing television sitcoms, and and I would get very, very frustrated. I would I would hand in a script and and and, you know, the. Uh, full-time writers or the guys ahead of me up on the on the um on the food chain would change most of it and then the producers would change it all again and then the actors would get it and they would change it again and it was so frustrating i was dating a girl at the time and she said why don't you write from you know for the theater where nobody can change the playwrights which you can't play i can't change a comma without the playwright's permission mm-hmm. and that's how that's really how i moved over it's to, it's it really was to get away from actors in a lot of ways I didn't realize they could change your words so much on TV. Well, on a, on, on a, on a TV sitcom, um, it, it, it's much more of a group effort to write a show. So you would you'd get an assignment. Um, I was writing with a partner in those days, and we'd have an assignment, and we'd hand it in. And then all the other writers got to um, do what they call punch-ups and put in better jokes or argue that the story doesn't work and we should change this. So it, it would all change and spin out of control. So... It would change a lot. And then it would first go to the producers and the producer said, no, this whole, this whole scene doesn't work. It, it, you, you've got it taking place in a coffee shop. It needs to take place in, in, in a, a pet cemetery. And so everything would then have to change. Um, speaking of pet cemeteries, the, um, <laughs> I, I thought, I thought I heard a dog there for a second. Um, <laughs> and then after they do it, then they do what they call a table read and you'd sit around the table and, the actors would have, and you'd see them. You'd see the actors with the script, with red pens, just crossing out any line they didn't want to say. Anything they felt didn't work for them, they would just cross out. And on a show that's been established, where the, um, where it's already a hit show, and these guys are making, you know, t- literally 20, 30, 40 times per week what I would be making, mm-hmm. they had the power. So they didn't have to say anything they didn't want to say. And by the way, I was 22, 23 years old. I should have shut my mouth. I mean, that's, again, 
that's when you go back to my book. That's one of the things I learned along the way is you're getting paid a lot of money, shut your mouth, do your job, and you'll you'll eventually get to the point where you can screw up everybody else's work. <laughs> is it because shows are written so quickly and they're being written every single week that they have lots of people working on the same script? Well, I, I think that's part of it. I mean, everybody, again, shows can work differently, but in the shows I was part of, um, uh, different writers would get assignments. And, and so you were the main writer of the script and you'd get your credit, but yeah, it didn't work. Like when I moved into the theater, you'd, you'd do a, a staged reading in your living room and then you'd do one in, in and, and you'd spend three months rewriting and then you'd do one in a theater in front of 20 or 30 people you trust. And then you'd go back and spend six months rewriting and then you'd do, mm-hmm. a, you know, a, maybe a small production and, and you know, and, and you get here, you know, you hand it in on Thursday and it has to be shot on Tuesday. It's a different animal and, and it was great and I loved it. And if I was smarter, I would have still been there. I might not have ever been as happy, but I would have been. Um, no, I don't know. I don't know if I would. I was going to say, but I would have been wealthier. I don't know. so then after that you moved to theater and you started writing your own shows or did you instantly go into producing well well what happened was remember i I mentioned that i was dating that girl and and she said oh you should write for the theater write a play for me and and i'll star in it and of course course. and but as you say of course logically but also of course as life goes by the time i was done writing it she was long gone um, uh, probably because I was spending all my time writing a play, but it, it, it did really well. Um, it, it first opened at a really small theater, um, um, on Santa Monica Boulevard in Los Angeles, uh, one of the theaters at the complex, the Ruby theater at the complex. Um, and, and it, it, it did pretty well there and somebody optioned it as a film and then we got the rights to do it. And it, it played in, I, I know I, I forget the number these days, but it ended up moving and playing in like 14 or 16 different cities. It played for a while at uh, Lincoln Center in New York. So, so that showed, yeah, so that did pretty well. What's the name of the show? Uh, It was called Different States. Um, So after this, you're going to be so enthralled by my crazy stories. You're going to go out and read the book and you'll see the very first story in the book is a story about, about the first reading we did in my grandmother's apartment in West Hollywood. (laughs) <laughs> and I got an old friend of mine um, uh, to read one of the lead roles. And she was phenomenal. I mean, she was an out-of-work actress. She was she was like paying to be on stage at the Groundlings and doing some other things. And I said, hey, I got the money. We're going to go to New York. We're going to go off-Broadway. And if it works, we're going to move it up. And you, you, she goes, no, I, I, don't, I don't see my career going. I said, what are you talking about? Well, I have a new agent and a new manager, and they think I should be the wacky neighbor on a sitcom. And I said, no, 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 no. That's that's acting failure. I'm giving you I'm, I'm, I'm giving you success and you want to trade it in for a chance to fail. That's crazy. And, and that's a story about how I tried to convince Lisa Kudrow to um, not <laughs> to not go after the wacky sitcom thing and, and instead st- stick with me. Um, and, um, yeah, again, I, I hate to, it's a theater story and it's a story from the book. So I'm hitting both worlds there. Um, <laughs> but, but the moral of the story is she knew exactly what she wanted and that's why she succeeded. She had a plan. She had put people around her who can get her to succeed in that plan. And she worked hard and she was talented. And, uh, you know, a lot of success is, is 
preparation and planning. And, and I, I'm to this day grateful to Lisa for that. Yeah. So how did you go from writing to producing? I was writing a bunch of plays and, and I would go to see them I'm from everywhere from um, Johannesburg to London to um, a, a show of mine called The Last Bear played it at the National Theater of Sweden and then was shown on Swedish TV. I mean, so my, the place that I wrote ran in all kinds of crazy places, Ebensburg, Pennsylvania. But, and I would go to these places and the shows would sell out. And then they'd close and the, and the producers would say, well, you know, we ran out of money. I go, what, how could you, the show is selling out. How could you run out of money? You don't know how to run a business. And it, it just mm. infuriated me. So I ended up getting more into producing. Um, and, I, you know, I still write. Again, like I said, I got a, I got a book that just came out. I, I'm happy to write and I love writing, but producing always felt tinged with righteous vengeance for me. Um, I, I, I'm going to teach these bastards what they're doing. I mean, and of course I didn't. It was mostly people teaching me. Um, but but I, was, I was very, very lucky to get in with an exceptional crowd of people in the Los Angeles theater community, um, including uh, Larry O'Connor, who ran the Schubert, and um, Charles Dillingham, who was... Um, sort of the business side of the Center Theater Group at the time, Barbara Beckley at the Colony, Tom Ormany at the Victory Theater, uh, Paula Holt at the Tiffany. I mean, and I, I don't know how I would, oh, Jeff Brown at La Mirada. I, these, these became my group. And some of these people are younger than me, but were more advanced in their theater career. And I just I basically just watched what they did and, and listened when they laughed at me. That's always good. Yeah. Did you meet them because you were looking for producers to be part of their group or you had worked with them on shows that you were writing? Um, no, I was, I was, and probably still am way too arrogant to go looking for mentors. I can recognize them. I'm not that bad, but um, it, I, I can't say I ever went looking for them. What happened was I was doing the third or fourth show of mine um, in, in another little theater somewhere else in Los Angeles. And somebody noticed that my shows were selling out and they were getting a, a little bit of critical acclaim. We're doing much better economically than we were doing crit critically, but that's, but that's a big deal in theater. And um, a, a guy named Dan Harper, who now works at Center Theater Group, um, Dan came to me after the show and said, you know, um, I'm part of this group and, and we're, we're at, at a place called Theater LA and we're starting this thing called the Ovation Awards. Maybe you'd like to get involved. You know, we need somebody to represent this small theater community. And I'm thinking to myself, small theater community, screw you. I'm, I'm going to take over the world. I would, but I, I was smart enough to at least show up. And, and that's where I met Larry O'Connor and Elisa Fishbach and um, another guy named Brad Burlingame. And um, they just, they seem to have figured out all the stuff that I was trying to figure out. And so that's how I got involved in the Ovation Awards. And that's what led me to work in, in uh, larger venues. Through the connections of knowing them or just the people that you met through the Ovations? Well, all, all of the above. Um, so there was a certain cachet. So the first year or maybe two, the first year I was part of the committee that put the Ovation Awards together. I think the next few years I was an associate producer and eventually I became the executive producer in years six or seven. 
I, I, I think that's the way it worked. Um, but all that time, before I became the executive producer, my job was doing things like um, lining up the celebrity talent to give away, you know, to give away the awards and and helping book yes. a theater. And so instead of trying to book, you know, a, you know, a 56 seat theater on on Hollywood Boulevard or Santa Monica Boulevard, suddenly I was negotiating to do a show at, at you know, at the Amundsen or at the. Mm. So and and my what would you call, I guess my adversary in the negotiations were, were people who I knew and liked and trusted and who had, had, um, had similar goals because they were behind this effort of the Ovation Awards. For those of us who are not from Los Angeles, or at least don't live in Los Angeles, could you describe the Ovation Awards a little bit? Because I think it's different than pretty much anything that we have on the East Coast. Well, it's, 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 it's the same and it's different. So here's what is similar. It's basically the Tony Awards for Southern California. It is the only peer-judged award show um, in, in, the, in the greater Los Angeles area. What's different about it, and I would say better as compared to the Tonys, is you know, the, uh, to qualify for the Tonys, your, your show basically has to open <laughs> on, in a three-square block area. I mean, it has to open yeah, in one of yeah. these theaters. Um, with the ovations, it isn't like that because Los Angeles is such a different community, both artistically and geographically. Um, um, however, it is the world's largest theater community, and I think it's important that everybody knows that. Um, back in those, I haven't seen an updated number, but back in those days, um, there were about 1,500 shows a year that opened in Los Angeles under the auspices of equity in, in some way. Um, and some of them, uh, you know, a lot of them under the 99 seat plan, but that was more than, than, the, than the number of shows combined in the rest of the United States. That is how big and powerful that the, the Los Angeles theater community is without knowing it. I think there's what I would call a um, double inferiority complex with the, new, with the Los Angeles theater community. Um, in, in the first hand, you know, in, in the nation, in the theater community, we, play, we feel like we're playing second fiddle to New York all the time. And in mm -hmm. the entertainment community in Los Angeles, we're playing, oh, even second fiddle. But you know, there's movies, there's there's TV, there's there's the recording industry. There even radio makes more yeah, money. Yeah. People, so um, there's quite an inferiority complex. And one of the things we try to do with the Ovation Awards was try to get over that and empower the community. And and while what we did was recognize excellence. I was one of the proponents, and I wasn't alone, but I was one of the proponents of using the award show itself as a way to promote the Los Angeles theater community. It was important to us that we were on the front page of the LA Times every day. It was important to us that people who won Ovation Awards would then go to New York and would put it in, when they were on Broadway, would put it in their bios, in the playbill. That was, um, that was part of our mission. I think I don't think that is the mission of the Ovation Awards today, uh, you know, 20 years further down the road. Um, so, you know, so I started to talk about the, the difference between the Tonys and the Ovations. The other big difference is, you know, the size of the theater. You can be an actor or an actress and you're, you know, acting is acting, we think. Uh, at least I always felt that way. It doesn't matter how many boards they have to put together to, to create a stage. It's, it's acting. You can be the best actor in front of 16 people or, or 4,000 people. There's a great story from the, from both the third ever ovation awards and 
from my book, which you can get on Amazon.com. Um, uh, there was there was one year the best actress in a play. See if I can get this right. Was oh, um, it was like Faye Dunaway for playing Maria Callas in in something, and then um, Annette Benning for doing Hedda Gabler at the Geffen, and Carol Burnett. I think she was in Company at the Taper, and a woman named Tracy Middendorf who did Summer in Smoke at ugh, Simon Levy's Fountain Theater, the Fountain Theater. And of course, you know, Tracy Middendorf is up there against the Giants, Annette Benning and Faye Dunaway and Carol Burnett. Nobody thinks Tracy Middendorf is gonna win. So lo and behold, they open the, the envelope, literally open an envelope, and, and, the, and the, it says, you know, and the winner for Best Actress in a play this year is Tracy Middendorf. And of course, Tracy, who, by the way, is a great actress and is having a really nice career, um, um, walks up on stage and she's she's crying. She's She can't even get the words out. She says, I can't, I don't. I, I, this, this. And she's pointing in the audience at Annette Benning, who's like nine months pregnant. There's no way she should have been there. Um, she was well <laughs> past her due date, but she was there and, and Faye Dunaway. And, and it, so, of course, as fate would have it, after she mumbles through a completely incoherent thank you speech because she was crying and so bewildered <laughs> and befuddled that she walks off the stage, the next presenter to come on was Annette Benning. Annette had just lost. Basically, you know, I, and again, I don't want to pick on Tracy because she's great, but to somebody the world hadn't heard of at that point. Yeah. So, so Annette walks on and passes Tracy in the wings. And and puts her arm around Tracy and brings her back out to the stage, and says and says I am going to give the I'm here to present the next award with my colleague and equal, Tracy Middendorf. Um, That's so awesome. Yeah, it was it was about the most gracious act I've ever seen, on a stage. You know, and Mother Teresa probably did something better, but on a stage, <laughs> that was, yeah. you know, I had, so, Martin Luther King, I, he had a dream that that's great, but on a st stage, well, that was on a stage, I guess. Okay, <laughs> Martin Luther King is first, and Ed Benning is second. <laughs> that's good ranking, okay. Sorry, that's, I, I just went into a bit of nonsense there. <laughs> so the Ovation Awards don't have to be of a certain contract or size of the house or 99 seat plus, it could just be any theater. Well, you have to be, you certainly have to be registered with equity. Okay. So, and again, you can be under equity's 99 seat plan, which means actors really aren't being paid anything worth. Correct. Being, now, Correct. 99 seat plan doesn't even exist anymore. So I'm talking about back right. then. <laughs> I, I, was, um, I was long out of that part of the theater world. And so I, I didn't wade in on that. Um, although I should say that there are heroes in this community who fought and went, I, I don't think most people know this, fought for the right to have that 99 seat plan in front of the Supreme Court of the United States. Uh, the, uh, Joe Stern and Barbara Beckley and Tom Ormany, um, they fought for that. And there was a permanent agreement put in place, which uh, somehow just got ignored. Um, I, it, I, it's not my fight, unless somebody asked me to get involved. Um, okay, so the question the question you actually asked though was uh, about the size of the theater. And, and here's the decision we made when we were creating the categories. There are some categories where money matters. Um, and those are the more technical things. You can't judge a set 
of a touring show at the Amundsen against, you know, a, 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 the moving arts theater with their 24 seats. Um, right, so right. In, in, in sets and costume design, and I think also in sound design, they separated between large and small theaters. But, but when it came to acting and writing, you know, the, the, the world premiere best play could, could be, you know, anywhere. It could be at the taper. It could, I, I keep naming theaters. It could be anywhere. Right. Because they don't necessarily require money as opposed to sound where you need money to get the right equipment. Yeah. Well, you know, I, it's again, one of the things I learned that I did not understand um, when I started producing plays is lights are everything. Lights are everything. I mean, you don't really, I, I would say you don't really need sound in most theaters. If it, it, you can, for the most of the history of theater, there was no amplified sound. You don't need it. It helps. It's great to have, but you don't mm -hmm. need it. Um, sets, I, I've seen plenty of black, black box shows that were amazing, but you can create sets with light. You can yep, create yep. character with light. You can create mood and feel. And, and if I had, if I had one, if I had one place to splurge on, on a theater production, it would be in, well, it would be in lights and it would be in marketing. Marketing, I think, <laughs> is a big one. Um, because I think that's, I think that's the mistake. When I got to larger theaters, when I started doing things uh, on Broadway or off Broadway, um, I would watch other productions and that's a mistake they would always seem to make is they would, they would go over budget and the first thing the producer wanted to cut was marketing because it was discretionary. Yes. Why? And, Why? Um, I think that many people who were producers came up through the arts and they just felt in their heart that it had to be beautiful. And, and it, it, the people who came through, you know, Scott Rudin, who produces about a third of the things on Broadway, he came up through the business angle. He, he's going to spend his money on marketing. And if the actor's making too much, they're fired and you get somebody for $10 an hour. Um, he, he's that's, he's a little bit more ruthless than I would be. Um, but, but I think people who come through the arts want often get to that position that they want to serve. They want to serve the art, but really you're not there. This is a controversial statement and I may regret saying it. You're not there as a producer. You're not there to serve the playwright. You're there to serve your investors. It's a business. I've also heard people say you can make the most beautiful art, but if nobody comes to see it, then what's the point of it? So you have to market it. Otherwise you have nobody in your seats and nobody ex experiences the art with you. Yeah. If a, you know, if a, we used to say, so if a plywood tree falls on a staged forest and nobody's there to hear it, do you have a show? <laughs> That's a very good example. Yeah. I, you know, I, I you, you, you gotta move people. And by the way, marketing doesn't necessarily um, mean money. Uh, you know, I had a, I went to, I went to New York with, I can't say their names, but, uh, with some, uh, the most powerful people in, in theater at the time. And we went to see a, um, uh, basically a backers audition for rent. And it was the worst thing I'd ever seen. My wife and I were there and there was this other couple next to us and, and they were in their eighties and they, they, uh, he ran, um, one of the biggest theater companies in the world. And my wife and I are looking at, at each other going, they flew us out to see this crap, that the songs are terrible, the story's 
bad. The characters I want to punch in the face. And there's nothing to this show. And when it was over, um, the guy who flew us out, he's got to be in his 80s and his wife's and they, they stood up and applauded and they were cheering and they loved Rent. They just thought it was the greatest thing ever. And I said, sir, um, you like the show? He goes, it was great. It was great. Well, um, what did you like? Did you, were you watching? Said, yes, sir. I was watching. I just want to know what you think. Did you see? Yes, sir. I saw it. Uh, I just want to know what it is that is, gets you so enthusiastic. He says, kid. It's six actors, five musicians, one set. It's brilliant. <laughs> the, he was applauding. The, yeah, he was applauding the budget. Yeah. You know, it's it's the changing economics of theater because we don't have we don't have the sort of public patronage that existed in other generations. Um, you know, going back to the Medici's and probably before that. Um, I, you know, I, I run the 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 muck, the we call it the Muck, the Muckenthaler Center down in Fullerton now. And we have this gorgeous 300-seat outdoor amphitheater. And it's tough to – we can do concerts. Concerts are easy. Theater is hard. It's – it's. we do some stuff. We probably bring three or four shows in per year for short runs. That might be one night or two nights. Um, but there's, there's just no way beyond that to make it feasible. Um, because it's outdoors or because of the size of the stage? Um, well, there, there's a lot of reasons. One is that, and probably the biggest is that the, I've only been here a year and a half, but there's a 40-year history of only doing only doing concerts and only doing concerts within a very narrow band. It was a lot of Eastern European folk music. So 2000 East, 2018 was my first season that I booked. So for the first time ever, we had a... Um, Special dance company on the stages, the Kaibele Dance Company. They're from LA. They came down to do a show, and they were unbelievable. And we had uh, an orchestra, twenty-six piece orchestra. Never been a, a thing like that. We did a film festival, a whole weekend long film festival down here. And for two thousand nineteen, we're about to announce that we're going to have a dance company in residence. And where I'm, I've, I, I don't know if I could say this. Yeah, because it's not. I'll, I, as long as I say it, the truth, I can do this. Um, we're negotiating, you know, for the actors' gang to bring a show down here um if we can and we're trying to figure out how to do that um so we uh, we did a we did a version of the vagina monologues this year with, with, oh, wonderful. With a very, oh, wonderful. yeah with a very very conservative audience um but we sold at about 150 percent of capacity so the audience was 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 very much there for us mostly subscribers um what we we have an annual membership here but if you pay a little money up front it's like $60. Um, you can buy tickets at half price throughout the year. So that's, we don't have, other than that, we don't really have a season subscription. Or, you know, you can pay $1,000 and just have tickets for everything. Um, but now it's mostly people who really want to see the show. Every performance, I have to start from scratch and figure out how to sell. There's a group called Hamil that's coming out from uh, South Korea next year. Um, there's a as an unbelievable mariachi band coming up from San Diego to do a show. Um, so we have all kinds of, of different things. We're going to do a, a radio play version of It's a Wonderful Life uh, the second week in December. So we can, we're, we're getting creative and doing all kinds of different things. And people are really enjoying the eclectic nature, the new eclectic nature of what we're showing here at the Muck. 
I was looking at your guys' brochure, and you have a couple gro- groups that I know of. I used to go to the Renaissance Fair all the time, and we would watch the Merry Wives of Windsor, and they were excellent. We would watch two or three of their shows whenever we were there. Oh, no. the, Mer- well, the Yeah, they're a singing group. Yeah. Right? They used yeah. to perform well, yeah. at the Renaissance Fair. Yes, okay. I get, yeah, they were, here, they were here about eight months ago. They were terrific. And I didn't... Um, Somebody else booked them. I had never heard of them. It's one of the people who work here, uh, Adam. He booked them. And he said, trust me, trust me. I did. They were, oh, they knocked people's socks off. They were a lot of fun. And um, some version of, uh, considering they're, you know, they're coming right out of the Renaissance in both music and dress, they were pretty irreverent. I think what they, I don't want to speak for them, but I think what they do is they do they do a couple of songs and they try to feel out what the audience is that night and see how far they can go. Yeah. Cause they can yeah. go pretty far. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. Ask me more questions, more theater questions. I do all kinds <laughs> of stuff. Yeah. Uh, at your space at the Muckenthaler, you guys don't just do the amphitheater. You guys have the big lawn where you do stuff and an art gallery. How ha- yeah. have you ever done anything like an art gallery or big open space? Or is this new for you? Um, no, one of my favorite projects I ever did um, was at Bergamot Station in Santa Monica, um, and I wasn't the the um, I, I, I wasn't the brainchild of this. It was um, a version of uh, Goldoni's Servant of Two Masters, the Commedia dell'arte piece. Um, uh, a guy named Douglas Weston sort of conceived this and was going to do it at the Matrix. It didn't work out at the Matrix, uh, which uh, theater on Melrose Avenue in West Hollywood, and so. Douglas came up with the idea of doing it in the parking lot at Bergamot Station, and it was the single, I don't know if I've ever felt as much pride in a production as I did in that one. It was unbelievable. The audience would show up at, I don't know, 6, 6.30, and my team, um, we would reconstruct, because remember, it's their parking lot. Bergamot has to use this as their parking lot. We would reconstruct not just a stage every night. It was put together by uh, Richard Hoover, who um, does all the um, the sets for the LA Opera and um, I think Game of Thrones. So, you know, he knew what he was doing. It was sort of these modular pieces. You, you put the stage together, but we didn't just create a stage. We created an entire 16th century Italian piazza every night. Wow. And there were a couple of people who had like shoulder issues and stuff they couldn't help build. So they stayed on the side and baked bread. So when the audience came, we had a little <laughs> cart. And we would bring it around. We'd give people hot bread to keep them warm in a cold month and and blankets. And we did it. We did the show as it might have been, except that it was in English, but as it might have been done, what is that, four or 500 years ago, you know, and, and it was absolutely brilliant. And the people who have gone on from that show to do stuff, um, Allison Tatlock and um, um, uh, Caitlin Hopkins is is uh, running one of the biggest theater schools in Texas. I think I think it's, UT Austin, but I'm not sure. Um, what are the what are the Longhorns are? Um, I think that's where she is. Um, and uh, Danny Passer is, is I think he's the head of clowning now for Cirque du Soleil, and he worked up all the physical bits for that show. It was it was an incredible conglomeration of talent um, on that stage, and an, and really a, a stupendous show that I'm I'm really proud of. And and it. Again, you you plan in Los Angeles, you plan your six-week run, but that ran for about five months, so very gratifying. Wow. What was the name of the company again? I don't even remember. The company just formed for 
for, I think, that the purpose of this. Douglas Weston deserves really the credit. He he was the idea guy and the guy who raised the money. I was just sort of a, you know, what in film they would call the line producer, which it's everything from just keeping people straight, looking at the budgets and, you know, and and signing a couple of checks. Uh, but it was a great, great production. Nice. I'll have to look that up. I also heard about one that you did called Trist. Oh, Trist. Trist. Yeah. Um, yeah. Wow. I don't know where you found that one. That's amazing. Um, it, even when you said the name, I didn't quite recognize what it was. But now I remember. I won't remember the exact venues, but um, there were three. The, this, the play was done simultaneously in three venues. Um, it was on a grant from AT&T that was worked through a guy named Bruce Whitney at Cal, whatever the thing is up in Valencia. Cal Arts? Uh, Cal Arts? Yes, Cal Arts in Valencia. Um, uh, Bruce Whitney, who we who I still like very much. Um, you don't get to say that about a lot of producers and directors that you work with, but <laughs> Bruce is great. Um, the, the way I remember it, um, it was like, I think it was a three-character play. And one actor was in New York, and one actor was in Phoenix, and one actor was in Los Angeles. And so each of the three actors, the two actors that weren't in a particular place were holographically projected to the other two venues. And so when you, if you were an audience member paying to see it, your experience was completely different depending on what you, you only saw one live person. I mean, it was a yeah, lot like, yeah. like this, this um, Google phone thing that we're doing. Yeah, um, you know, areas. I can see, you know, I can see as some faces. One, I got one uh, uh, headshot, one moving person, and then worst of all, I see me. <laughs> so they just had everybody mic'd, and they just pumped the sound in, and the holograms moved around on stage. Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, it's not, it's, it's not like a Star Trek holodeck. It doesn't, you know, it's, it didn't convince you that the person was in the room. It was sort of you know, a, sort of a phantom ghost, two-dimensional thing, but that's all right. It was, it yeah. was, it's gotta yeah. be a couple of decades ago and it was really cool and I was glad to be part of it. And, and I was proud of AT&T for, um, you know, for getting behind something really strange and different that wasn't going to get them a lot of, uh, necessarily a lot of publicity. Um, so I loved it. Boy, I'm doing a lot of strange things. <laughs> Acting is so much more about the actors and people interacting with each other. How did you rehearse three people in three different states um, working together? Well, well, um, all of the actors, my recollection is, all of the actors were, were Cal State students. What, what is it? The Cal... Cal Arts? Cal Arts. They were all Cal Arts students. So... There were there were weeks of rehearsals where they were all in the same room. Oh, okay. And then oh, okay. because, you know, who has the funds to go send you know people out for six weeks to three different cities? So most of it was rehearsed in in Valencia, and then maybe three days out, everybody was it was was sent out to their respective locations. It was crazy, and we did. I was in New York for it, and I was at this real hipster bar me we may not have used the word hipsters in those days this um <laughs> this real hipster bar in on the in the bowery and it 
it was nuts. <laughs> and crazy people, like people that had no interest in theater. Most of the audience, that's another interesting thing. Most of the audience was not a theater audience. You know, theater audiences in New York, I mean, they want to see My Fair Lady. This was yeah, tech yeah. geeks. There were, the, most of the audience was tech geeks who, would, who came in with notebooks. And to, I mean, I, to me, when I see somebody with a notebook, I think they're a reviewer. And I remember thinking, how could 80% of our audience be reviewers? That's nuts. Um, but no, they were just tech guys trying to figure out what we were doing and how we were doing it. And maybe they were writing reviews in zines because that was a thing at the time. Um, <laughs> I, it was yet another, I, I'm, again, I'm one of those guys who, much, much like this today, if something presents itself, I'm the guy who raises his hand and says, yeah, let's try that. I don't care. What, it doesn't have to make money. It doesn't have to, doesn't have to have the whole thing spelled out. Let's have some fun. I would love just to know the technical aspect of how set up three different theaters to simultaneously project, record, send back to the same thing across the country. It must have been a headache. Right. But if you go to see a movie this week and the projector stops working, you're so dead. I mean, you're, you're dependent on technology every way. You know, if, you, if you're driving into work today and your engine dies, you, you may let it literally be dead. Um, we're dependent on technology. And if you're going to experiment, um, if, if you don't mind me going way, way too into the pomposity scale, um, it, it's no different than, than Neil Armstrong getting on a rocket and trying to go to the moon. If it doesn't work, he dies. But, but you're trying to experiment and push the boundaries. And, and of course, we had no real risk. Was it, it wasn't our money. It wasn't our reputation. It was would just been... It would have been a good cocktail party story. We still, we still wouldn't lose. <laughs> you know, Neil Armstrong could have really lost. Yeah, theater, most of the time, we're not losing anything that big. Hopefully. Nah, the worst, the, the worst I've ever seen is um, in Altadena. I don't remember the name of the theater, but in Altadena, we were doing, jeez, um, we were doing, we must have been doing Macbeth. Yes, we were doing Macbeth, um, and one of the actors uh, fell in the um, in the first act and literally broke his leg. He wow. broke his wow. leg, um, and and they just skipped. Uh, he was playing. I don't know. I was going to say he was playing Laertes. I don't even know if I'm in the right play there. Um, <laughs> uh, and, I, and I'm even blanking on the guy's name. And he's really he's just a brilliant actor. Um, he, he he was the actor who who played the owner of the coffee shop on Seinfeld where they all hung out and I'm blanking on his name, but he broke his leg on stage. And during the intermission, I got to go up and say, you know, I've always wanted to say this as, as a producer, but they're a doctor in the house. Um, and so it, the, the, it turns out the father of the guy playing Macbeth was an orthopedic surgeon. Ah. So he, so, so we put this guy, the actor who broke his leg, in a chair. He just stayed on stage for the whole second act with his leg up in a chair. And then afterwards, we took him to the hospital. And, and I said, I kept saying to the doctor, are you sure? He said, leg's already broken. Yeah, what's that going to do now? But, I, oh man, this guy deserves the credit for this. Um, but you, you really want to shake the hand of, of that actor who says, no, I have to finish my performance. I can't go to the hospital with a broken leg. 
until I finished the performance. Larry, Larry Mandley. That's his name, Larry Mandley. <laughs> um, but that's one of, you know, I did once, I had a show, a um, little indelicate of a story, but I had a show going to New York that was opening and uh, it was basically a two character show. And, and the actress, the lead actress, had a cyst burst on her ovary, like we, oh. and she was, she was, I don't want to say it. She's because she was a public figure. She, um, I hear so that I her names. terribly. Oh. Right. And there was no way she could go on. And we had an understudy, but the lead actor refused to go on with the understudy. Wow. So, well, you know, yeah, there's, I'm telling you, there's always this, you can't get through a show without a good story. Very true. And um, the backer, Oh geez, the, the the guy who put probably eighty percent of that money up for that show is a household name, incredibly famous guy, and I had to walk back into his office and explain to him that he's, you know, he may lose every penny he put in. That the actor did not want to go on stage. Well, you know, it's really hard. You know, the understudy was not ready. And it it was a limited engagement. It was only supposed to run about four weeks. Um, um, So, you know, if if you take the two or three weeks to get her back up to speed, it's not worth even opening. Yeah. Then you only have two weeks of performance. The other actors is I already did all of my work. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the, the funny thing is, even though these are the kind of stories that pop out in an interview, Almost, almost universally, my experiences in theater, especially Los Angeles theater, have just been amazing. Um, you know, sometimes a little weird. Sometimes because I started thirty, maybe thirty, maybe thirty years ago, the stories I would tell today might sound a little sexist, might not conform to the Me Too movement. Um, but um, you know, and 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 I owe people apologies, but not. Oh boy, I made that sound much worse than it is. <laughs> <laughs> I made that sound much worse than I had to. Um, I, I, somebody, so I, I'll tell you what I'm talking about so you'll understand it's not nearly that bad. Um, but it, it's not what I would say today as a 55-year-old guy. So when I was in my late 20s, my first ever show uh, ran in New York. It, it, it started at a small theater. But the most wonderful thing for me was that I grew up in New York, um, you know, 20 minutes outside of Manhattan and every single girl I had a crush on in high school came to see that show. And, um, and, um, I, 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 if I had been married at the time, I would have not been as exploitive of the power you get when your name is above the title on, uh, in a show. Um, but, you know, we're young and we learn and, and I have a daughter now. So I learn a lot. You learn really <laughs> fast sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. So how did you get from working in theater to starting Playboy radio? Right. Well, what I really did was launch networks for Sirius XM. So what happened was, um, I had written and produced a play about a musical about the life of Newt Rockney, the Notre Dame legendary Notre Dame football coach. Um, the music was um, the music 
and lyrics were composed by a guy named Larry O'Keefe, who has gone on to, I think he's got two or three um, Tony nominations for all kinds of stuff. And he's, he's brilliant. Um, but my part of it wasn't good at all. So, but, but that show was on tour and I had another thing sitting down in New York and things popping up. And I was basically coming home one day a week. And my wife said to me, you know, it, it's time to start a family and you can't, you can't come home on Wednesdays. That's not the way to raise a child. So, uh, <laughs> I said, I said I'll, I'll look around for something. That was the time satellite radio was starting. Um, and for some reason, I had never really worked a day in radio in my life. And I got hired to be the vice president of a, of, of, of a major multinational radio corporation. Um, so my job from 2002 to 2017, maybe, yeah, um, was to launch radio stations on Sirius XM. And the first one was Playboy. And it was, in that world, a huge success. It was the second most listened to talk station uh, in anywhere in the world on satellite. Howard Stern was first, um, and and I took it in directions where you wouldn't necessarily. Think. So, yeah, you know, Playboy is a sexist brand, and you have to you have to be able to show boobs on the radio to to honor what some of what that brand is. But we also did um, we would broadcast live from the Playboy Jazz Festival from backstage at the Jazz Festival at the Hollywood Bowl every year. And we would play excerpts from um, the recordings of those great historic uh, Playboy interviews from the magazine. Um, and we would uh, have a Where Are They Now show where we'd catch up with playmates from you know, 15, 30, 50 years ago. Uh, we would go uh, and do live remotes from the openings of all the Playboy clubs. So we did a lot. We had a game show. We actually had a game show on that channel, which is almost unheard of in radio. Um, so... And there's so much I could tell you about about Playboy Radio, which uh, of which I'm tremendously proud. But one of the things was just because I thought it was funny. That's the thing you can do on satellite because you're not dependent on ratings. Um, are, are you familiar <laughs> all with the? With, there's a radio show called The Prairie Home Companion. Oh, yep, I've listened uh, to them for a number of years. Right, with Garrison Keeler. So what we did is we we did a version of it ourselves called The Playboy Home Companion, <laughs> and you know which 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 took place instead of Lake Wobegon, it took place in Holmby Hills where the Playboy Mansion is. And we had an impersonator hosted as Mr. Hefner. And, and it basically it was nothing more than a talent show for playmates. They would, they would, and the, the more inappropriate the talent was for radio, the more I enjoyed it. So we had tap dancers and ventriloquists. Why you would do ventriloquy on the radio, I don't know. Um, but just be entertaining. People just want to be entertained. They don't, they don't need to think out the whole thing. Um, but I, but I was really proud of the fact that I, I, I like to say that I took the world's most visual brand playboy and brought it into the world's least visual medium, which is radio. Yeah. Um, interesting. I, uh, they would think, yeah, but I also like ran, that. but I also, uh, I, Sirius moved me to New York to launch, uh, entertainment weekly as a station. And um, I ran out Q, which was the only LGBT station anywhere in America. And, you know, and, and plenty of others. Uh, I, I was the, I think I was the first person to launch a Spanish language station on satellite radio. Which, you know, oh. that's oh. weird, but okay, sure. Why not? 
I, I can speak a little bit. My, my, you know, mi esposa está mexicana, yo tengo una hija para Guatemala. Uh, yo hablo, pero yo hablo solamente en el presente, en el futuro o pasado. No idea what well, you just said. Oh, uh, uh, what I was saying was that um, I, my my wife is actually Mexican, and so and my daughter is from Guatemala, adopted from Guatemala. So I know a little Spanish, but I I can only speak in the present tense, not the future or the past. And really, I only know the words that I know from high school. You know, colors and food and and <laughs> body parts. So so yeah, I, I did that. For about 15 now, during those years, I still produced little theater or shows that I wrote would be opening. Um, um, and you know, and that was one of one of the things I loved about theater is like I had a show that ran in London, I had a show that ran in Stockholm, Helsinki, and Oslo, or Johannesburg, I had a show in in um uh, Sydney. And I, I think people don't realize that generally. The playwright's work is done on, on the first production. You, you, you know you're working in in rehearsals, but when it, when a theater in London picks up one of my plays and they fly me out and put me up at their own expense for two weeks, I, I can show up at the rehearsals for an hour a day, give some notes, and then I'm free in London on their bill. Yeah, that is pretty <laughs> impressive. I would love that. Right. Of course, you know the the other side is you may work for a year and a half to write that play and nobody may produce it. I mean, so you may, you may, you may never get any trip whatsoever, but that was worth it for me. I like that. Yeah. That's, that's, anyway, that's, that, yeah. That's how I got to radio. And I did, I did that for 15 years and, and, and then I retired. And um, a couple of months after I retired, I got a call from somebody saying, Hey, do you want to run this not for profit? And I said, Nope. Never ran enough <laughs> I've never run a not-for-profit before. I don't even understand what it is. And they and they said, but your resume says that that you're running a not I said, no, no, no. I'm president of the school board of my daughter's school. That's not really running a not-for-profit. And, and the woman says to me, but it says you raised $4 million. I said, I raised $4 million, but I was just talking people out of, I was talking rich people into investing in their own kids. Yeah, that's easy. Really yeah. raising easy. money. Right. And they said, well, yeah, but, you know, this place, they have a theater and an art gallery. You have an art gallery. I said, all right, I'll meet them. And then, yeah, and then about a year and a half ago, I came down here. I really loved it. It's it's fun. And, you know, I still love it, live up in L.A., but um, we get to play every day. Every day is another adventure. We do crazy, again, crazy, crazy stuff here. Um, the, the, the community here knows us as, you know, having this art gallery and having this amphitheater. Or they know that we have the, the largest car show of all things, a car show. This will be our 25th year, largest car show in Orange County. But we do all these other things. Most of what we do on a day-to-day -day basis comes out of um, our education department. So we bring the arts to everywhere they aren't. So we, we bring arts education into prisons, into homeless shelters, into battered women's facilities. We bring into low-cost housing units. We run youth centers in Placentia and La Habra. We run programs out of, I think, about a dozen libraries. We cooperate and, and do programs with the, both the Fullerton and Anaheim school districts. Um, we, we have another program for uh, people on parole. We have a summer arts day camp for kids in our neighborhood and a second one for kids on the autism spectrum. So, wow. All wow. That, yeah, all that stuff is going on down here. And, and in some ways, our theater is kind of a front for all of that. <laughs> you know, it's, it, it's, it's what the audience sees. They don't know all this other stuff we're doing. Um, 
On the other hand, it, it's, it's really great. In fact, we just last week um, opened a, a recording studio, a fully functioning state-of-the-art recording studio. We're going to use it to, you know, as part of our education department, bring kids in and train them uh, to to produce or edit. And we think that's going to be a, an, an exciting addition to, to what we do. But, you know, a, a band can get down here and, and record an album, not not an entire orchestra. But, you know, if, if there's no more than four or five pieces, you can come down here and, and, and record a whole album in our in our studio. That's really cool. Yeah, there's, you guys should come down here. Come on down and see some stuff. I will. Yeah, well, it's funny because the theater isn't giant and it's only about 300 seats. Most of the seats get sold to people like in the surrounding eight zip codes. So I, I, I can't, I can't pay to advertise in the Long Beach Press-Telegram if that still exists. I don't know if it does. <laughs> I um, think it does. I don't read newspapers. Yeah, all right. Um, I guess neither do I. Um because, you know, our seats are all sold. Now I can put I can put a few aside for you, but but it's it's counterproductive until I can build another thousand seats. Which, by the way, I'm not on the verge of doing or likely to do because we're situated. In, you know, we've got nine acres of land, and we're situated in a residential area. So what I'm looking for is people who want to do more um, sort of environmental or site specific theater, um, and and I, I would say, I know election day is tomorrow, and if by some fluke I get elected president, even though there is no presidential election, I pledge, <laughs> I pledge my first decree as president of the United States, um, I will make a law that says any place that's got more than three or four acres of open land must do Shakespeare in the park. <laughs> that's a lot, um, of Shakespeare. a lot of Shakespeare. Um, he wrote a lot of words. Um, very true. <laughs> very, yeah. very true. Very true. And, and so we have to do more stuff like that. Get off our stage. Think of our entire campus as an art gallery. Think of our entire campus as a, as a stage. And I haven't yet been able to tap into artists who are thinking that way. But, you know, what we also have is a mansion that we have, a, you know, the Muckenthaler family built this mansion in 1925. Um, they were uh, citrus growers and they had acres and acres and acres of oranges and grapefruits and, and I don't know, lemons. I'm making stuff up now. I really don't know what they had. Um, but citrus, but citrus groves and the, and this house would be a, an incredible setting for a, a version of Gatsby mm-hmm. or, you know, or, or a thousand other things that's, that, that one seems the most, that one seems the most attractive to me. Cause I just saw a dance version of Gatsby at Disney hall about two months ago. I wish I could remember the name of the company. Um, Interesting. But I can't. But they were great. We've talked to a couple people lately. The immersive theater and found space is growing quite a bit lately. So it's just getting them down to the Fullerton area? Well, I mean, it's it's out there. It's 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 a thing to do. It's been around for 50 years. Um I don't but I don't want to do it just to do it or because I like the the phrase. I really only want to do it if I find something that really works that that sort of can only be done here. And unfortunately, the only things I've found are sort of like those murder mystery evening theater things. And that's most common, right? I'm that's not where I'm looking to take uh, where I'm looking to take this place. I don't think 
I, I think it would sell out. But I mean, I could do that and um, uh, sticks cover bands, you know, every week and and sell out without any trouble. But yeah, we go know, see we're, sticks. Yeah, we're we're <laughs> a, yeah we're a you know we're a not for profit and we're a cultural institution and we should you know part of what we're invested in is 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 both raising the profile of new artists and and raising the stakes for people in the community and and sort of letting them see and expand and grow their own boundaries. Um, we've done really well in in um, sort of fostering new talent here in Fullerton and, and the surrounds. There's a, a family called the Darden, the Darden Sisters, four young ladies, like high school and college age. And they're terrific. They're, you know, as soon, as soon as they're on, as soon as they're out of, they're all out of high school and they can go on tour, they've got record companies and booking agents and stuff and just want to send them out. Um, but until they do, they're regulars here and they sell out and they're brilliant and they've got a real understanding. They sing sort of Americana music, but they do it with great reverence as well as great talent. So we like to reinvest in our artistic community too. Yeah, there's quite a bit of theater there. I used to work at a storefront theater called Hunger Artist. I don't think they're there anymore, but I did a couple shows down there with him. I, yeah, I I don't know. I mean, I know the probably the closest theaters, theaters to us that I know are La Mirada, and they've got 1,400 seats. They're big. They're, yeah, much um, larger. Uh, yeah, South Coast Rep. Um, um, oh, Long, Long Beach Playhouse is wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, I work there. Yeah, in the... Is the Carpenter Center there too? Uh, that's at Cal State uh, Long Beach. Okay. Um, so there certainly are. There's there's a, a new place called the Musco Center down here. Oh. It might be UC Irvine or it's one of Don't the colleges down here that. in Orange County. It's it's probably open in the last three years or so. They, I, I haven't been there, I'm ashamed to say, but they seem to do, um, they seem to bring in some some really interesting shows. So there's there's lots of stuff going on. I don't know how much of it is sort of inventive or cutting edge or, or, or you know, or, or pushing an envelope or whatever cliche I could come up with. Um, uh, so we'd like to we'd like to try and be a little edgier than whatever else we're seeing. Yeah, get new audience, yeah, get new, new people audience. in there, try new things, not just shake yeah, I mean, over it, and over. Yeah, um, you know, there was uh, the year before I got here, there was a survey, and the average audience member in our theater was um, close to eighty. Wow, which, which means, you know, it's a good chance you're going to lose half your audience by attrition in you know, four years. Yeah, so you've got to yeah. start thinking, you know, about about alternatives and what else you can do, and and you have to be respectful to to large groups of people who have supported the theater for decades and want to see what they want to see, and so you can't you can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. That's the issue I think a lot of people have. How do you build an audience but not get rid of the old audience? And if you just focus on the old audience, you aren't building an audience who will be there for you in the next 30 years. Yeah. Yeah, it you know, I it it's the it's an age-old conundrum and there'll never be a final answer to it and the truth is the answer is probably different for every company or every stage. Um, everybody's got to find their own equation and, 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 and don't look for it. Don't look for the magic equation. And, and you may find it and get too comfortable because seven or eight years from now, it, your equation might change. You may not even notice it. 
Yeah, because people um, are yeah. changing and growing. Yeah, yeah. Um, you want to hear more funny stories? Name a celebrity. I'll tell you more stories from my book. Give me a laugh. <laughs> what, you, Actually, you want? We're getting Frank to Frank Sinatra getting... sued me. My shoving match with Leonard Nimoy. Um, Charlton Heston. Um, um, I, oh, I can't tell bad ones. Uh, I, I will say this: the only story I, I promised myself that I wouldn't include any story where celebrity was the bad guy. I had to be the idiot in every story. The one exception <laughs> I made was because um, you know I, did, I just didn't want to denigrate anybody in the public eye. But I felt at this point, just because he was a jerk to me one day probably wouldn't hurt Bill Cosby in anybody's eyes. Um, yeah, probably not. So I, 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 right. Uh, so I, I, we still use the, the Cosby story, but um, um, yeah, the Leonard Nimoy story was actually an Ovation Awards story, um, as was the Charlton Heston story. Um, um, what should I tell? You want to you hear Charlton Heston? Uh, actually, we've come up to an hour and need to ask the final question. So do you have any good twin stories? Oh, oh, twin stories. Um, oh man. Um, you know, um, I can't. I don't want to talk about children who are twins. So I will tell you the story of my um, my mother has two brothers or had two brothers who were twins, and um, and and they they grew up in Brooklyn and they were red. They were bright red hair and. Um, it was, you know, those are the famous days of Brooklyn where literally in the building, in the apartment building, they all grew up around, uh, you guys are young. I don't know how many of these names you know, but Neil Sedaka, Neil Diamond, Carol King, Rico Petroselli. Did any of those ring a bell? Yeah, I know. Yeah, I know Carol King. Okay. <laughs> um, there, there was a time when all those people were famous, but in the, when they were growing up in like the 40s or 50s, they, they, a lot of people just got famous from that little neighborhood. And um, um, years later, I had, so I had these two twin uncles and, um, one of them went to see Neil Sedaka in concert. Now, Neil, um, if, if you don't know, Neil was a huge, huge recording star in like the sixties. Breaking up is hard to do. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah, okay. okay. Or, um, I love, I love my little calendar girl. Yep. Every no, that day. one too. Okay. No. Right. So he, uh, just anything to stop me from singing. Um, so. <laughs> One of my uncles goes to see him in concert and weasels his way backstage and says, Neil, you remember me? And he goes, no, no, who are you? He goes, I'm, Dan, I don't want to say the name. He goes, I'm, you know, I'm one of the, I'm one of the twins who grew up in the same building. And, you know, your parents were friends with my parents and I hope they're well. And I just want to say, I'm so glad I saw you in concert. And Sadaka goes off on him and says, you am an F for you. I hate you. You were a bastard to me. You did it. And, 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 <laughs> and of course, my uncle said, no, I wasn't. I was never that way. That's just who I, I was never like that. The only person who was like, like that was my twin brother. You're mad. You're mad at the other guy, not me. <laughs> <laughs> and and, and um, Neil didn't buy it. But um, <laughs> yeah, he was of still course. Yeah, him out. He didn't. The funny thing is, Neil didn't remember that there were two of them. He only remembered there being one. And he thought, because I, I caught up with him later, he thought that the two boys were the same person, but he always heard about the twins. So he thought my mother, who also had red hair, was the other twin. He thought they were- Oh, fraternal like, instead of identical. Yeah, he thought they were fraternal twins. Interesting. That's the best twin story. I get the other thing, the other, only other twin stories I have are like about Kirby Puckett or Tony Oliva. 
But that's really cool that he yeah. like cool that he grew up in the same building and just same. never. Like you wouldn't see them together or anything, or. Um. Or I guess if they didn't get along, they, they didn't might not have spent much time together. Well, also you remember they they you know they did grow up. Those apartment buildings are giant, um, but they weren't the same age. So if you're two or three years difference, you know you don't necessarily hang out. And also, Neil. Um, while my uncles were outside playing baseball or stoop ball or stick ball or something, um, the story goes that, and I think this is in the book, that Neil Sedaka's mother wouldn't let him play. She was going, Neil, Neil, you have to come in and practice your piano. And, they, and it was a big thing. They all used to make fun of, they, they used to make fun of Neil because his mother used to, um, um, she was really tough on him and very, was very overbearing. And, and you know, meanwhile, he probably made a hundred million dollars. Right. Yeah. Then he became famous. Yeah. Yep. That's so that, that's the end of my twin stories. <laughs> Still pretty good. <laughs> nice. Do you have any web page or social media you want people to follow or find you on? Um, no, if I if there was one thing, you know, you could you could go to the muck.org and see what we're doing down here at the muck or go to Amazon and type in my name, Farrell, like Will Farrell at last name Hirsch, like Emil Hirsch. Just it's search for my name on Amazon, buy the book. I will, I will, you know what? Only for your show. Money back guarantee to any of your uh viewers or listeners who who buy the book. If you don't like it, if it isn't the best book by me you've ever read, I will refund your money. Perfect. Who who could yes. who could pass up that? Right, right. In fact, in fact, double your money back. Let's get really quick. Double your money back. <laughs> um, I, you know, again, I'm on Facebook and Twitter. You can find me, but I don't care about those. Okay, thank okay. you. All right, bye. Bye. Thanks. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. For more, visit our website at twinstalktheater.podbean.com and subscribe on iTunes or Google Play Music. You can also interact with us on Facebook or Instagram at Twinstock Theater. Title music, Dance Macabre, is provided by Kevin McLeod of IncomTech.com under Creative Commons License 3.0.